no it was it was really good and i'm glad we got to that 15 figure as well which you did allude to last time and that actually falls nicely in line with some of the papers that have come out on like natural bodybuilding recommendations and they've come to like the one to 0.5 percent of body weight loss per week and then even towards the latter end coming down below 0.5 percent and it seems some of the kind of the professionals the guys that do the best lose a little bit slower towards the end and have a bit of a longer prep so that all works in quite nicely as well so and then i mean just to also bring up because you you brought it up and i just want to re-emphasize the point on females and menstrual cycle loss like i've been contacted by females who have not got their menstrual cycle and they're still wanting to push and compete and like i refuse and later coming back and having discussions and just yeah it's upsetting to see that i don't think people realize the long-term consequences for females because us guys we can kind of somewhat get away with it we're a bit more uh, able to kind of break ourselves up uh, down and build ourselves back up but yeah having had that first-hand experience i think you're completely right it isn't spoken enough about and yeah i don't it's a discussion for another day but it makes me yeah. think that maybe even the organizations themselves that run these competitions it's something that cotton can come top down from there mm. although any coaches listening to this uh, obviously can do that too. Yeah. yeah, I agree. That would be cool to see that coming from the top down. I'd never even thought about that. That would be good. And then I guess because we've talked about, actually we've reframed it. So we've kind of got the length because the length kind of changes with, well, the rapidness changes with the level of leanness that you are. And I guess there is that difficulty of estimating body fat. On that point, in terms of, obviously you spoke about DEXA, but if you were, if like as a practitioner, I think MNU are quite good on their skin calipers. But is skin calipers the way you prefer to estimate body fat, or would, is there any other preferred method? No, good question. Um, and we we adamantly say, and it's for several different reasons. We on our full with honors program, we have a anthropometry day where we go through skin caliper testing and. and it, you know, anyone who's done like a personal trainer type course, it's like that, that <laughs> looks like a bicep skin fold. Um, at, you know, hit and hope it's ridiculous. Um, totally kind of inaccurate way of doing it. So we use a, a very, very standardized method. And, and one of my thoughts is potentially to turn it into an, an accredited kind of weekend where we accredit practitioners in being able to do this very, very well. Um, and people, you know, around the country, you, you know, you've got these horrible, uh, I won't name them again, but these, everyone will know the hormone, you know, test pinching mm-hmm. your nipple and pinching your balls and whatever, and all oh, the ratio and hormones and all this rubbish. Um, but being able to use someone's skeleton, which is the same each time you go to them and you marking up using these skeletal landmarks so that you get the same pinch every single time using very specific methods. And this is what we teach our, our practitioners, um, MNU, for the Thonor program um, students to do, to work with their clients. But we tell them, do not use a body fat percentage because the equations, the differences in individuals, and my key thing from working, and mainly this is in like professional sport, but the way people hold on to the number, because we do it's like the weight on the scales 
people have a visual idea. It's like when I said 26% body fat earlier. Most people listening to that will, will have an emotional response to that number. Irrelevant. Before I even maybe said it was a male or a female, you think, hi. For instance, maybe you don't. Um, but when you say to someone, your skin fold number is um, 185, they go, is that high or low? And you go, it's 185. All right, but is that good or bad? It's nothing. It's just a marker in the sand. It's your first test, 185. They've got no concept of what high or low or emotional response or these kind of, and you go, right, we're going to work from here um, and, and report that. So you could then convert that to a body fat percentage if, if you wanted to, but it would be wildly inaccurate. And you can use different equations and, and different numbers of sites of skin folds and get a 50% difference in what body fat percentage it gives you. But if you just work towards these numbers, some of six, seven, eight skin fold sites, and then you can see up or down, it's very, very specific. It's probably the best method of tracking body fat change, um, but not body fat percentage. So for me, if you're going to do this, you are using estimates. You're, for, for guys like you, you'll know roughly where you've ended um, on show day and then you'll know how much weight you've gained back and you'll you know people like you and lots of people who follow you who are similar will have a really good ability to get in a ballpark that if you jumped on a deck so you probably wouldn't be surprised by you know you could get a plus or minus figure guest and then you get on it um for everyone else it's a case of go and try and get one. They're relatively inexpensive these days or just guess. Like it's an, an, an educated guess. Like ideally your coach is going to have some knowledge. And if, you know what, if they're using 20 and they get it wrong, you've got a margin for error there. Error there. Even if they use 15 and they overestimate your body fat percentage and you lose weight quicker and you lose a bit of lean body mass, just remember it's so easy to regain lost lean body mass because we, we, you know, this, this thing of muscle memory and I don't really see muscle memory discussed that much. Um, maybe that's just cause I don't dabble in the, the bodybuilding world enough or the injury world or, or these kind of things, but you know, muscle mm -hmm. memory and the ability to regain lost muscle and the fact that you still got the micro uh, myonuclei there ready to build the muscle. It's so much faster than gaining it so being efficient in your fat loss getting it done getting in and out being happy adhering not being hungry getting shredded and then regaining that one kilo muscle you lost nice and quick um even you know getting ready early uh which i, I know is a bit more of a practice thing now it's something i used yeah. with with several olympians in weightlifting and powerlifting is paralympic powerlifting is getting ready early and you know Realistically, being able to go back to maintenance or a slight surplus, being able to, like, gee, this is amazing. I'm having this many more calories. I'm this lean. I'm feeling better. My, even my kind of testosterone, my libido, my vigor for life has gone up. Um, and feeling like that on competition day being a big deal. But yeah, being able to regain muscle isn't, it, it is great and fast. And so don't worry too much about that estimation of body fat percentage. Cool. Um, but 
get a coach who can estimate it a bit better than you if you're a complete layperson or get a DEXA or, you know, even, even going on a, um, what they call in-body 720, 360, whatever the hell they're called, it'll give you an all right measure. Um, obey the rules of the testing. Cool. Go from there. Cool. Perfect. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that was very well said. And I guess the question that comes to my mind next, and you've brought up uh, refeeds a little bit, you brought up diet breaks somewhat. And I guess the question is for me, is there a, max, a maximum length of kind of fat loss? Is there a maximum amount of time that you've seen to be, I, I guess the length and the degree of weight that you've lost are somewhat related. Um, is there kind of a maximum there? Because I guess as to bring it to like a physique sport example, something at least I've come to, and I think a few practitioners have come to as well is if you are very over fat in an off season, say you don't go from that to shredded, you break it up into like two diet phases, for example. Mm. So you can kind of get some of that diet fatigue somewhat reduced. You can normalize things before you go again. I don't, so is there, yeah, I guess that's my question. Is there a maximum length or maximum amount of weight that you've seen that is like past that you're better off just going through that maintenance phase that we talked about on episode 60? <laughs> Yeah, so really good question. I'm I'm going to be straight up front with this and say I don't know, and I I don't think anyone knows. And I think the best people at the minute, not the best people, but it's people who know themselves are are doing the best at the minute. And unfortunately, that sucks because it means the rest of us need to go through trial and error. Um, the are. Uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by the, you know, I, I, I've got this lecture I delivered. I can't remember how long ago, but it was called aggressive refeeds for busting fat loss plateaus or something like that. And, um, there, there was a lot of, I suppose, conjecture on my behalf in there in terms of the mechanistic stuff that we see, you know, and for instance, like the Matador study, which I, I don't know if we discussed, last time i i presume not maybe um don't remember it coming up no so yeah yeah maybe it wasn't even out then i'm not sure it was yeah cool um and so you know this is essentially an intermittent calorie restriction type protocol and it you know you can take elements from that study to to consider diet breaks um and, uh, you know, it's it's within the world of refeeds as well. And we've got all the, you know, we've got much more overfeeding studies that we can look at or going back to maintenance studies. And um, in terms of there being a length, I think the thing to say initially is probably starting body fat percentage is going to be a big factor deciding factor on how long you can diet so maybe going from 40 percent to 30 percent whereas going that's 10 percent difference whereas going from 20 to 10 is going to be different and you might you, you know that there is a big difference and if we de- delve really deeply down we might start we might what we might be discussing here is actually more distance from set point as i've mentioned and um when i when i talk about this like kind of metabolic adaptation and the body fighting against us um because of how far you know i I use this this rubber band analogy if this is where we start you've kind of got this phrase settling point you've got the kind of 
um, give in your rubber band until we get to here. And then, and I use this super, super often with regards to calorie deficits because if I go from here, if, if, the view, if people are doing, watching this on YouTube, I guess, they can actually see what I'm doing here, but audio, audio person, people, I'm holding a rubber band and it's taut, but it's not stretched. If I take that, this is physics and potential energy, and this is essentially a lot how our, our physiology works. If, we, if I pull that quickly and stretch it, the amount of potential energy in that rubber band is exactly the same as if I stretched it out slowly to that point. Now, lots of the, like I said, evidence-based crowd, all these well-meaning idiots go, if you lose weight fast, your metabolism will adapt really quickly and you won't be, have anywhere to go after that. That's yeah. not a thing. That's not evidence-based. That's not, there's no, the research doesn't show that. Um, so, um, going back to your point, which was, yeah, um, if, if someone has got metabolic derangement, maybe some leptin insensitivity, they, over, a, uh, over a lifetime, they have, their set point is maybe tracked up so that they are getting, and which is a very, very common occurrence. Um, it's annoying that our human physiology likes to defend the bottom end, but not defend the top end so much. And once we gain weight, and this is why people should be obsessed with the prevention of weight gain. Um, and not, not from a weight stigma point of view, but we should be supporting people who go through grief and trauma and eating disorders. And we should be educating parents around not putting their children on calorie controlled diets because they put them in this, this realm where they end up at 25, 35, 45 yo-yo dieting, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but that's a huge bomb that I've dropped in there. <laughs> but they have gained weight. And they, the, the issue is, is the mental health issues that they're suffering from at this point and the binge eating and, and all these kind of things. We, we, we go up there and we want to try and stop that happening. And we want to be able to, we want to educate people and, and help them to manage going from a 18 year old kid student whatever into a workplace with no activity and highly palatable foods everywhere and workplace you know obesogenic environments etc we want to stop people going up because once they go up this is your rubber band it was here in the middle and it did this it didn't mm -hmm. do this because that'd be class because it'll pull you back down <laughs> and some people the genetic elite imagine the steve halls of this world that's what happens he goes on an all-inclusive holiday for a month <laughs> And that happens and he comes back, doesn't count calories and he just comes back to where he was. Um, so, you know, our hard gainer types or our naturally lean types, you know, our genetics are such a big role in this. And there are lots of habits involved in this as well, of course, but there are people not like Steve Hall out there who have just got a six pack and they eat crap all day long. And so anyway, people go up, but once this goes up here, they're then having to, pull it down and the, the resistance is starting from a higher body fat point. So I've gone around the houses to come back to my point of probably how far we're moving from this point, the length of time here, when this is more stretched, we probably, probably, maybe that's where the proposed benefits of maybe some refeeds and some diet breaks being more frequent would be helpful is at this point up here not so much 
you can just diet, losing body fat. Your, your body's pretty happy. It's maybe even getting a bit healthier. We know when you're very overweight and you lose weight, your sex drive and your libido and your mm-hmm. testosterone, your estrogen doesn't go down. It goes up. You feel better. But then when we start getting too far and this becomes stretched, we, it goes down the other side. So it's down at this point where, and so my answer is no, I just don't, I don't have a, because I suppose I'm not someone like yourself or, or, or any of the other prep coaches who's, who's got a, uh, you know, coaching tens and tens, if not hundreds of clients to very lean conditions. So I don't have my own N equals one experiences that would allow me to draw, um, through in this very very um specific subset of humans whereas if we look at just the research and the obesity research again they're not doing this they're not going where do the wheels fall off where where do we get the significant metabolic adaptation or it realistically it tends to be this it's how far we get from this this rubber band and then we just don't have the research um you know i talked about the matador study and that was two weeks of dieting and two weeks of not dieting eating at energy balance um, or maintenance calories, sorry. So, and it showed really, really frigging interesting results in terms of um, resting energy expenditure and the changes and people dieting half the amount of time but ending up losing more body fat um, with half the calorie deficit essentially over 16 weeks. It's, it's, a, it's a bonkers study. Um, you know, we're just starting to get more of these done in terms of, the perfect protocol. What if we did one week and one week? Um, yeah. But more specifically, I suppose, for people trying to get optimal results, is there this element of... And, and then we start talking about, are we getting physiological differences, physiological benefits? Are we getting ahead of the game by having breaks and refeeds? Or are we ending up at the same point or is it purely behavioral adherence type benefits? And I don't, I don't listen to the noise around this area, so I don't know if people have strong ideas on either side. I would like to believe that an optimal protocol exists out there where you would be able to manipulate this to some extent. I do suppose I have a small practitioner belief, and I use the word belief specifically here, of the idea of getting ready early, having a multi-phasic, um, multi-faceted and multi-phasic dieting strategy towards a photo shoot or competition prep is the optimal way to do it. Um, and, you know, in terms of my decaying process, it's like, okay, that's, that's your kind of macro. But within that, you might have diet a week diet break and you might have a three, three-day aggressive refeed somewhere around here a couple of times. Um, so I don't know how long it would be until you needed to have a diet break. My, my thing is always people need to work with the person in front of them and people mm-hmm. say they do, but they don't. Um, not enough people, not enough people, people talking on the internet. Everyone should diet slowly. Like these people are, have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers and they're evidence-based and they're blue, you know, apparently blue tick, they're nice guys and girls. No, they're not, they're talking rubbish, but they sounds good. Don't mm. diet fast, diet slow. You're wrong, mate. <laughs> Give me a reference for goodness sakes. It sounds nice, but it's, yeah. it's not evidence-based. So it's multiphasic. And 
I just don't know. I'll, I'll just clarify one point I said there because I people won't have followed it. But are we getting ahead physiologically? So we know that we can overfeed someone for three days, probably so they're in a calorie excess, probably not them not gain any body fat. Oh, how do we do that? Through supercompensation of glycogen stores. They will get some um, return of the adaptive things that have happened. So they, their resting energy expenditure or their 24-hour energy expenditure will go up significantly. Um, they might get slight increases in leptin if their carbohydrate percentage or portion is high enough. The problem is, is we get those beneficial effects, but what you've got to remember is the other group has been dieting for three days whilst you've been doing that. So even if you, you both start, right, it's you and me, and you do your aggressive refeed, and I'm struggling, but I just carry on for three days, and then you measure us again three days and two weeks later, I'm now two weeks and three days of deficit, and you're two weeks. Mm. Who's ahead? And this is the question that we then have to ask ourselves of, was the benefit of those three days physiologically enough to put you ahead of me or do we if we end up at the same point i want to do your protocol yeah because you picked out you know, for three <laughs> days you ate loads of oats and rice and whatever and i continued with my horrible gallery deficit um and that's the question or is there just an amazing adherence effect of yeah. i get to look forward to it and then we just need to manage behaviors around binge and restrict cycles and people not spending the two weeks or the dieting period making shopping lists of junk food that they're going to binge on. Um, and we've all done it. I've been there. But that, those things need to be managed by coaches and, and athletes, et cetera. And just to realize you go, it's a slippery slope towards disordered eating, towards really poor relationships with food. Um, Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of the Revive Stronger member site. Inside you'll find a thriving forum, a growing exercise library, presentations, research reviews, and courses. If you want to get involved, sign up via the description. So my summary is I don't know, Steve. <laughs> Martin, hearing you talk through that is really cool. I've got kind of, and the listeners will have the same. Um, they're listening to every episode, like I'm talking to every practitioner, talking to people like cliff wilson who has had like taken that like he's had thousands of people go pro so he has like a wealth of knowledge and talking to you who has intricate knowledge in nutrition so then to then hear you talking and being like i can draw the lines here and i can talk about even myself personally the approach i have come to is multi-fat like multi-phasic non-linear uh in that and i talk like my thought of it was like a the rubber band like the settling range kind of diet down i call it like the honeymoon phase where you get mm. to like the lower end of that and then it starts to suck and you just hold off then that's where i kind of break for an extended time and then the second phase comes in and that's where the multi-day refeeds and things come in the nice. diet breaks so cool. to hear you kind of say that that's an idea that you've kind of come to without even being a practitioner and doing it yourself it's yeah. it's really cool to like draw the lines between mm. very smart people and kind of people in the thick of it as well so yeah, I appreciate cool. your very honest thoughts about it all. Yeah, great. My pleasure. Uh, I didn't have any 
particular follow-up questions around that it's just incredibly interesting at the moment because there are like you said you're not in the thick of it you're not talking and listening to people who have like then their opinions on kind of what the benefits of the non-linear dieting approaches are but there definitely are people that have quite strong opinions thinking that there are kind of up regulations in potential bmr like down regulation in diet fatigue factors and that's having the, the potential benefits and there's are others uh, very much evidence-based who are suggesting that it is down to just adherence and you can never quite know because we're not they're not in metabolic wards all the time and things like this so uh, yeah. it's it's it is a kind of opinion piece in a way yeah. and it's interesting to hear that again you're kind of none the wiser in that sense either i guess yeah yeah very true um i think i think it is that thing of it's one of those nice areas where people can get a really good insight into multiple evidence-based practitioners. So not well-meaning idiots, but genuinely evidence-based people who understand research. And there are people with their own biases. And there are people who just like to be a bit alternative or shock factor. But generally, we're, we're sort of hitting off the same hymn sheet, but just have different experiences and different ideas about the data and, and being respectful of each other's ideas and, and kind of being super open to that study that tests our difference of opinion and being able to go, oh, that was the outcome. And, you know, no one's going to be like, oh, see, I told you. And it's like, cool. Like your guess was better than mine. It's like heads or tails. No one's going, ah, I told you it would be heads. It's like it's a 50-50 chance. Um, and, you know, th there's not hard evidence either way. We don't, that whole thing of like, who's going to be ahead? We don't know it. We definitely, definitely know there's physiological impacts that could be termed beneficial in that time frame of refeeds and diet breaks. We, we've measured it. It's, it's, I'd say, unequivocal. It's the difference in the net outcome mm. after we take the, the time scale into, into play. Um, so it, that's you know, we can all kind of mentally masturbate over this stuff. But yeah. Realistically, it doesn't matter because we, we can't really tell and you do one prep this way and one prep that way and make a few changes and it's cool and it's fun and it's interesting, but you're going to get mostly the same outcome, but it's good to have a process and it's good to know why you're doing yeah. things. Um, but yeah, no, that's cool. And actually, to further your point, it was the talk about who's ahead and it's also you said you like the idea of getting ready early and then eating up that's also becoming more and more like the goal it doesn't always happen because it's a contest prep it doesn't always yeah. happen for people yeah. so very interesting to hear that as well um yeah I'm, I'm cognizant of your time martin and i'm really happy actually we feel i feel like we've done true justice to the topic of kind of rapid fat loss where your thoughts are right now mm. and certainly touched on some new points so i want to say a massive thank you again for having you on uh, i'm sure you'll be My on pleasure. again before three years yes, um, yes i hope so at least <laughs> and i want to make sure people can reach out to you find out more about mnu find out more about you uh where's the best place for people to head yeah so best place re really is kind of um instagram and facebook i'm martin nutrition on there and um, my martin-mcdonald.com website, where I said that, you know, martin-mcdonald.com forward slash rapid weight loss is um, there'll be something there when this is released, I reckon. There'll definitely be a page. There'll definitely be some way of like registering your interest or just sticking your email in and I'll send you this thing I'm going to create. Um, th those are the, the kind of main places. And then, you know, from there, I've got a link in my, in my bio to kind of, you can look down for, 
um, you know, I've got, I'll have a link to this podcast and um, it's got links to kind of our Mac Nutrition Uni, the website, and people can go and do their research on there in terms of what that is if, if this is the first time they've heard of it. And there's, a, there's an interest list for the, the foundation course and there that they can go and, and get that information um, and, and any other, other of those things. So th- those are the best places. I love it when people reach out to me, um, you know, and I, I'm sort of happy to interact and help people in that way. Um, and I pro- probably after recording this, I'll probably go and do a half decent post where I summarize that paper awesome. um, better. And um, for people on that front, now, that's actually one thing I just wanted to say. I'll see if I can be super succinct about it. But it was just either, and you can tell me, Steve, actually. I'll let you be super honest with me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I got the point across that I think I did well in terms of rapid fat loss is an evidence-based strategy and actually could be deemed to be better then slower weight loss, more moderate restrictions in, in certain scenarios through, you know, adherence, lower hunger, um, you know, better weight maintenance at, in, in the long term, in the, in the 12 months, the, the two years, etc. And I suppose on that front, maybe I didn't then make the extra leap to the idea that people go, if you lose weight quickly, you'll rebound. And now I say that out loud, I think I maybe said something about it. Um, but I, I guess I just wanted to clarify that that also isn't what we see. This idea that the faster you lose weight, um, the worse the kind of long-term outcome is. Um, and yes, if you lose more weight, the, the, the rubber band might be more stretched, but if you lose weight slower and get to the same point, the rubber band is still just as stretched. And if you stretch the rubber band quickly, it doesn't, the potential energy, the, the fighting against your body goes down and down and down and down back to this point, if that's what happens. And, and in lots of people, we understand that weight loss maintenance is a huge issue, something that we need to learn loads more about. And it's one of my personal beliefs that the people who have been doing this research uh, or supporting this research and particularly, I know this is going to offend some people, but the dietitians supporting this are inadequately trained, inadequately knowledgeable. They can put you together a nutritionally complete diet and a calorie deficit diet. They actually, in terms of the teaching of dietetics courses, very, very, very poor and limited on weight loss. If you're going in um, and you need a renal dietitian, you'll get great care because they are trained specifically and they know what they do. Hopefully, you'll get great care. But actually, weight loss, it's not done well. Behavior change is not taught well at Mm -hmm. the crux of a registered dietitian. They can go on and do more and you do get some obesity specialist dietitians, for instance, but it's not done well. And so, realistically going eat low fat you know the the kind of old school thing kind of demonization flexible dieting if we were teaching that in these studies in the way that we the good people in the evidence-based realm are 
you might see different. If you gave people behavior change, you know, techniques, if there was some psychological, psychological support, if you, if people learn this multiphasic dieting strategy where certain diet breaks actually teach them to live, I feel like, yeah. Did we, did we speak about that last time? Like I had this thing coaching to live. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So people actually realize the exit strategy at the end of it, rather than, okay, Mm. you finish the study, go off, you need to keep eating well rather than even if they're in a social support group, which some of the horrible weight loss groups have, and it's pretty much the best thing about them is that there's some social support. So, um, and you know, this whole idea that, oh, everyone, you sh- no one should intentionally lose weight. It's just a, it's bad and it, it, it shouldn't ever be done. It's not true. Um, people are maintaining weight loss. Um, one of the studies that earlier that I mentioned, I was getting confused at, at two years, they were still maintaining like a 16 to 20 something, 23 kilo weight loss. I think that's maybe 16 was the females, males was 23 and two years. Um, and this is the thing, clinically meaningful weight loss is like 5% or more. And in the fast groups and all these studies that I talk about when I talk about rapid fat loss, the rapid fat loss group is maintaining a significantly greater number of individuals who have this clinically meaningful weight loss of greater than 10%. And the other groups, they've got more of them. So this idea that lose it fast, regain it fast is not a thing. Um, there will be greater pressures if you've lost more weight. But when you get back to the point where the moderate group, if they bother to even keep going, because three times more likely to drop out, you're back at the same point and you're not regaining anymore. And we see these curves, we've got them 12 months, 24 months, etc. So that was just one thing that as I was kind of thinking what we'd spoken about, I, I don't feel like I said out loud enough of, cause that's what people come back at. Well, yeah. Okay. You may be less hungry, but you've damaged your metabolism. Yeah. Not a thing. There we go. No, it wasn't, I, I, wasn't very brief. <laughs> it's all right. I think you, we hadn't touched on it. So actually I think that's really beneficial because I think that may have been a question that came up. I don't know if you've got time. I could ask you just two quick follow-up questions. Go on. You mentioned earlier that, um, you have some thoughts to why the more aggressive calorie deficit may be easier to adhere to and hunger is less. And also then, oh, I don't know if you have any thoughts to why the aggressive dieting approach doesn't lead to the rebound that many people think. Mm. Yeah, so um, <laughs> the, the, the the rapid fat loss stuff, I, I didn't, genuinely... I. I've said this a few times in different formats and different conferences I've spoken at. And um, I just, I'm just lazy, let's be honest. I, I, I read random research. I just kind of get, go down a rabbit hole. I just enjoy reading research. Ever since I started my, my job as a, a performance nutritionist way, way back in the day, sports nutrition, um, athletes and weightlifters, et cetera. But at that time, I was obsessed with, paleo for instance and i was reading all this ancestral health stuff and in all these areas and then i was going into the clinical research and um i just like reading random stuff about nutrition and all these different areas and then you kind of start picking stuff up uh, that oh you kind of oh that's interesting they're saying this in that research and they're saying this and it's the opposing and i wonder i basically read some some research and if anyone's listened to this I, i can't even explain it properly but basically it was about food movement through your gastrointestinal tract and just the first part of your small um your intestine is your duodenum and it was about duodenum uh 
stretching and the signaling among kind of gut hormones and appetite, these appetite hormones that we're learning more and more about. And um, the, basically the signaling that occurs, and I just kind of had this idea that maybe there was an element of, and there was a threshold of, because we, we also understand that kind of like mastication, something you have to say very carefully, but the chewing, <laughs> even that impacts our levels of satiation, for instance. Um, and, and impacts these gut hormones, these appetite hormones. And so maybe there's this threshold for kind of that stretching within the duodenum, the food passing through there, and all the different digestive processes. And we even know that kind of to take ourselves out of the postprandial state, um, uh, no, sorry, out of the postabsorptive state. So postabsorptive is basically fasting, rest, We've, we've eaten, we've uh, digested, uh, absorbed, assimilated all the nutrients. We're back to baseline. Just after we've eaten, we're digesting, and then we're in the post-absorptive state, uh, post-prandial state. Get my words mixed up. But basically, if we're just eating such a low-calorie diet, these are 400 to 800-calorie diets, we're not taking ourselves enough out of this post um absorptive state and also so these there's these gut signaling so this is like a third facet i don't normally talk about but you know not coming up this this post-absorptive state is enough and just whether or not we, we know that with complete fasting you do get a reduction in in um appetite and after a number of hours there's research showing that maybe at 72 hours we start to get this starvation response not starvation mode the starvation response things start to slow down we get massive reductions in protein degradation so we don't waste away and so my thinking is just around those two things of it's just not enough to almost initiate this normal functioning of our appetite and this kind of we're in this kind of starvation response area the other one is just simply ketosis we know that for some individuals, and it's not universal, that ketosis can help manage appetite. And when you're eating a very low-calorie diet, you do go into ketosis, whether you're low-percentage carbohydrate or not. You're just very low-calorie, and your energy deficit leads you being in ketosis. So that's a, a third facet that I would put on that in terms of uh, one of those reasons. The problem is they don't, me they don't measure any of this stuff. Mm. often in sometimes you do get some measures of um, ketosis blood ketones with it but um those are some ideas on to your second question which was hey pascal here i just quickly wanted to remind you of our online coaching service at revive stronger we put a huge emphasis on the personal aspect of our coaching and if you want to take your physique and knowledge to the next level hit the link in the description below just on that first one, sorry. <laughs> I wonder, just going down a bit of a rabbit hole. Yeah. A lot of people experience after refeed days, hunger is much higher. Mm. I wonder if that's related at all, because that's yeah. obviously like it's you ate at maintenance for two days. Why are you now more hungry? Obviously, there's got to be some psychology involved, I guess. But mm. I wonder if it's related at all to those points you've mentioned. Yeah, we do. We do also have this element of like the streps receptors in our stomach yeah. as well. Uh, people saying like you stretched your stomach and you know the, the, that isn't like a complete old wives tale so uh all of that is an intimate interplay and it is exactly that these kind of things that you suddenly see 
hunger ramping up with refeeds. Um, so yeah, a bit bizarre. Um, so then, yeah, what was your other question? So second question was, so after the rapid fat loss diets, uh, and then obviously you've said kind of adherence oh, and everything. So yeah, why why are the rebounds not happening? Do, we, do you have any ideas onto that? Yeah, so... <sighs> People are regaining weight after weight loss, um, commonly. And so I think it's important to clarify that what I'm saying is here is the, the regain is not different when matched to a slower weight loss group in terms of, um, there's this, postulation that you diet slower on your 500 calorie deficit because every personal trainer and friggin' herbalife rep and his dog has done a diet with someone oh look i've helped someone lose weight and and it's like yeah anyone anyone can do get someone to lose weight yeah but my clients lose weight and keep it off do they do they show me your client your where's your first client bring them here right now and let me see if they've kept it all off people just think because they're not going on a juice cleanse for 10 days you know actually this literally was on my post the other day someone going i was just wondering if after lockdown maybe i'd go oh can i just say this as well i wouldn't recommend people do uh, i actually just wrote these th three things down who is it not for those trying to get pregnant probably if if it's if it starts the impact menstrual cycle children definitely not children and also just remembering that energy balance is one of the a strong um influencer of immune function so just right now just this idea of if you're if you're trying to bolster your immune system i've been asked a lot should i yeah. you know, can i do a calorie deficit this time and it's a tricky discussion to have because people are saying, well, I feel like I'm at greater risk because of um, being overweight, complications, what should I do? My definite answer is just don't make it rapid. That's my definite note. That's where there's no nuance. So I just wanted to say that. And then, so why, um, where was I? So why aren't we comparing? So people going, oh yeah, everyone's everyone in their dog. You know, it's made people lose weight. Bring your first client. Um, there's this idea of people who use this small calorie deficit, and then it's like, oh cool, look, I maintain my weight loss. That's happy days. So the the two groups, you know, you've got one rapidly losing weight, one losing weight slowly, and then somehow you, it's like going to be this. And the person who lost weight quickly as ends up heavier than the person who lost weight slowly. That's not a thing. Um, it's they might, they might, and I don't know if there'd be strong evidence for this, but I, simply because of the fact that they will have lost double the amount of weight or more if we've done a rapid fat loss of you know one two point two pounds versus four point four pounds. And this doesn't actually always happen because I. I can picture a graph in my head and I don't know what paper it's from, but actually the rapid weight loss group didn't rebound like that. But anyway, if there is weight loss, it's a factor of their metabolism has potentially adapted more, potentially. Um, but we know that that does top out 
if someone loses weight and gets to 10% of their body weight loss, mm. metabolic adaptation will be towards the upper limit of where it's going to get to for that individual. So if they both lost 10% of their body weight, but the other group has lost 20%, because they're both over 10%, which is a bit of a threshold of kind of a decaying returns or, you know, it's plateaued. Um, adaptive thermogenesis, metabolic adaptation is plateaued. Therefore, you've lost a lot more weight, but your metabolism hasn't slowed down that much more. And your hunger isn't that much higher. So... Um, it gets higher and higher and higher um, for every kilo of fat you lose, but all the different adaptations don't just stack up to be double the amount. So for that reason, that would be a reason why maybe you don't get this um, rebound. But what I'm saying is if someone has gone into this without any behavior change, they've just done, they've just cut their calories to 500, they've probably given themselves some eating issues because they didn't do the Martin McDonald method, which is, unconditional permission to eat if you need to go back to maintenance for one day if you feel really hungry if you feel uh, you know if anything happens you have complete control to be completely flexible completely flexible flexible dieting is not just being able to get ice cream in your diet it's yeah. being able to be multifaceted and multiphasic it's you can choose on the day i'm not doing a deficit today i'm going back to maintenance and that's why i think having set end goals i don't know if this was something i explained last time but it's something i definitely talk about on my tour a lot is Almost having an endpoint, having a day where you have to be a certain, look a certain way or weigh a certain amount, is it adds a level of complexity that potentially leads you further towards more disordered eating, yeah. simply because you are not the master of your own destiny anymore, and you're really frigging hungry, or you're really frigging tired, or you really want to eat that food, or you really want to go to that social occasion, and you can't. Whereas when someone just has a non-specific time frame to do this in, they can just go back to maintenance for a couple of days. There doesn't even have to be anything fancy about it. It doesn't have to be a fancy macro split. It doesn't have to, you can just not feel like being hungry that day. You can just not feel like being very great with meal prep that day. You can eat that really palatable food. Likewise, even if you are going to eat a thousand calories a day, I remember days where as part of my 800 to a thousand calories, I just ate crap. And it was lovely, tasted great. Then I was flipping hungry that <laughs> evening. But I just went with it because I was like, cool, I'm, I'm happy. I made that decision. Next day, I ate highly satiating foods. And it was my choice and I'm the master of my own destiny. Yeah. Um, so uh, if someone's losing weight in a stupid way, then that's what we observe as the fitness industry. They did a crash diet and they put it all back on. But most of what they lost anyway was water weight. That's not what we're talking about here with these aggressive fat loss. We're losing fat. We're yeah. losing 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds of fat. You're not gaining that back rapidly like you would with a, a juice, cleanse, detox, fast rubbish. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, do, am I giving enough of an answer there? Yeah, I think so. I think it's just the context of... If you're listening to this and you've done a rapid fat loss that's evidence-based, then you're not regaining it like they do. And these are not the rapid fat loss diets that you'd ever recommend, the juice cleanse and things like this. So, yeah. no, well answered. And, uh, like, I think this has got a wealth of information. Again, uh, all the links you mentioned, I won't make you mention them all again because that would be pointless. I'll just make sure people know that they're all going to be linked below. So I have that cool. all available for people to get hold of. Um, and, yeah, Martin. Thank you so much. It's been Appreciate a pleasure. It. Yes, and uh, we'll do it again soon.
Thanks so much, Steve. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We cap them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.